supposed to start. My clock says I have two minutes late, and so let's be compromisers and start. Genesis 39. Mine says 9.32. Genesis 39. Genesis 39. And um, I hope it's okay. I hope you'll not be offended that I took the jacket off, found it a little bit warm. I'll put it back on the next service, and I'm going to sip on this coffee. I didn't bring enough. I didn't bring coffee for anybody, everybody, but if you want to sip... Wait, hang on. Here. <laughs> Genesis 39. Genesis 39 in our Bibles. Um, I want to talk about... I, I see in Joseph's life, Joseph is a unique, a unique character or person in the Bible... Because we have, we say a lot of times he's the only person for which we don't have a recorded sin other than the Lord Jesus. That's actually not the case. Um, there are at least one or two others for whom we don't have recorded sins. Um, and I don't know whether I could agree whether we ha have no recorded sins for Joseph or not. Because in our text, I think we find him in a place where he should have understand it was some, somewhat sinful for him to be in. And so I'm not sure uh, that that's the case. In any case, here's what we do know. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Whether it's recorded for our knowledge or not doesn't really matter because Romans 3.23, Romans 3.10, these override that there's nothing written about Joseph sinning. Again, I would contend that probably, that probably Joseph should have known that this was sinful. I would say this, uh, as we look at this text and he finds himself in a place alone with a lady who's not his wife, who, by the way, had been tempting, tempting him already, so he put himself in a place of temptation. Temptation is not sinful, Okay, it is not a sin to be tempted. I do think it's a sin when you keep putting yourself in a place to be tempted over and over again. Um, I don't think that's wise. Um, man, back in probably 1999, I attended a Faith Promise missions conference at a, at a rather large church. Actually, a very large church. I'm going to be pretty vague. Um, because they're still around. Uh, they're not anywhere near this church. They're out of state. Um, big church, television ministry, multiple staff, thousands of people, so on and so forth. And it was the only missions conference that I ever attended alone. In other words, without Paula and Amanda and Caleb. It was the only one I went to by myself. And uh, when I got to the church, the pastor said, hey, listen, since you're here alone, uh, we're going to put you in two different houses for, for during the conference because I actually have more people who want to house missionaries uh, than we have missionaries, and I'm actually having some people who are mad because they aren't going to have a missionary stay in their house. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll move wherever you want me to move. And he said, now, the first couple you're going to stay with are brand-new Christians, brand-new, and um, you, you'll, you'll stay with them for the first couple days. 
and, and they introduced themselves to me. And he, when they introduced themselves to me, they said, oh, you're going to love our place. You're going to have a whole wing of the house to yourself. And I, uh, I kind of chuckled. I thought, yeah, right, okay, whatever. And uh, it was true. I had a whole wing of the house to myself. Not only did I have a whole wing of the house to myself, my bedroom or the two walk-in closets or the bathroom attached to my bedroom were all larger than the bedroom that Amanda and Caleb were sharing in our apartment. <laughs> so I was completely alone in that house. I could block myself off and, and not be around anybody, and they kind of let me have that end of the house to myself. But it was just a couple, and they were new Christians. And I said to the man, I said, hey, what time do you leave for work in the morning? And he said, oh, I, I generally leave between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning. And I said, okay, well, I'll leave when you do. And he said, oh, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. And, and I didn't want to go through the whole, I don't want to be in a house with your wife thing with him. I just said, you know, I would prefer to leave when you leave. So if that's okay with you, I'll do that. Well, what do you do? <laughs> Wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, get your shower, and now you've got hours before you have any responsibilities at the conference. And we had responsibilities early, but not at 4, 35 o'clock. Well, I would get in the car and I would drive down into the back of a Walmart and I'd go to sleep for a couple more hours. The pastor's staff got a hold of that and they began to make fun of me. They were like, what's wrong with you getting up so early in the morning? Why don't you just stay there? And I, I explained to them, I said, you know, that, that, that man leaves and there's going to be this lady there. And they said, well, don't you trust yourself? And I said, well, not any more than Joseph. <laughs> And that's where we find Joseph in our text, alone in a house with a lady, and it gets him in trouble. Did he have bad intentions? I don't think so. Did it put him in a bad place? He ended up in prison. Yeah, he ended up in a bad place. How do you avoid temptation? And that's what I want to talk about, is how do we overcome temptation? I, I, was, I was sitting several years ago now, in a cabin in southwestern Colorado with a group of pastors. Um, we had gone for a, a, a pastor's retreat. And we were spending some time just encouraging one another, fellowshipping with one another, and uh, taking time to, to have devotions and pray together, so on and so forth. And uh, we all had read a book in preparation for our meeting, and we were going to discuss the book, and the book was about temptation and overcoming temptation and so on and so forth, and I'll never forget that one of the pastors in the conversation, he raised his hand, and it was so bizarre, and everybody just kind of looked at him like, you might be from Mars, <laughs> but his, his plan for overcoming temptation was this. He said, look it, I, I have figured out how to overcome temptation. He said, I have sat down and I have figured all the ways I could be tempted and I've decided that I will avoid all of those things. That sounds like a good plan on the surface. Here's the problem. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Above all things, who can know it? The truth of the matter is you and I don't know all the ways we can be tempted. We can't figure it out. And the truth of the matter is, our hearts are so sinful and desperately wicked, we could be tempted to do any. You ever say, I could never be tempted to do that? Don't say that. 
You do not know your heart. That's Bible. You don't know your heart. I don't know my heart. So it's foolish to say, I know what I could be tempted in and what I can't be tempted in. Because you know what? Somebody's listening. And he will find a way to tempt you. So let's look at Genesis 39. And let's look at Joseph. He was a, a, no doubt, a saved man. I think he did his very, very best to live godly, and there's so many good examples we can learn from Joseph. I think he puts himself in a bad place in this text. Some may argue he didn't have a choice. He was doing his work. I think he did have a choice because he was basically running that thing. His boss let him have the run of the house and everything else. He even says it in this text. But let's take a look. How do we, when we are tempted... Because it's not a matter of if you're going to be tempted. <laughs> it's a matter of when you're tempted. Okay? And I've already said it's not a sin to be tempted. If it was a sin to be tempted, Jesus would have sinned. Right? Because he was tempted multiple times in the wilderness. He never sinned. That was what made him perfect. There is no sin in temptation. It's what you do with temptation that either gives victory or sin. Joseph is in this place where he's tempted. The temptress comes to him. He doesn't sin. How does he get his way out of that? What does he do? What is his response? I think Joseph's response is, is far more practical and effective than the pastor who in Colorado said, well, I've sat down and written a list and I'll just avoid all those things. Because I can guarantee you that in the years that have passed, that that pastor has learned there were ways that he has been tempted that he had not made, had not written down on his list. So what do I do to avoid sinning when I'm tempted? Genesis 39, verse 2 through 9. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw the Lord, that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. This is not the first time. Okay, this was something that was going on. But he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master, what if not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand? There's none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How can I do, and this is the key, if you mark your Bible, I would encourage you to mark this last line that Joseph, that Joseph says, this last phrase, how then can I do this great wickedness 
and sin against God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let's take a look at this text and, and really the key, I think, that Joseph shows us to overcoming temptation and not falling to sin but coming out victorious when tempted is this last phrase that Joseph utters. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Father, bless this time in your word. Speak to every heart, work in every life. Bless the other Sunday school classes that are meeting together. Bless the service to come. Pray a blessing evening service, Lord. But right now, help us, Lord, to focus on the word and, Lord, to uh, glean from it that we might be as victorious as Joseph was in this incident as temptation comes our way. Bless we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to notice that what Joseph says as, he's, as the temptress comes to him and says, hey, look, at, lie with me. Okay? What does he say? I think it's important to notice that he didn't say, but what if we get caught? That's not, his, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, look, at, your husband's been good to me. He has given me this position. I'm the head of the house. I've got a pretty good life. I know I'm a slave in Egypt, uh, but I've got things pretty much together here. And you know what? I, I, I wouldn't want to disrespect your husband that way. I wouldn't want to jeopardize my position. It's not what David or Joseph says. His response is so important. How then can I? Do this great wickedness and sin against God. And in all his trials and in all his tribulations, Joseph never stopped being governed by his love for God. And that caused him to have a healthy fear of God. And by the way, it is biblical to have a healthy fear of God. It's not a fear that says, man, I'm just waiting for God to squish me like a bug, like God's just waiting for me to mess up so he can squish me because God does not take pleasure in having to chastise us. Ever have to, ever have to chastise your children and say, look, this is going to hurt you more than, or it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you? Did you mean it? You probably did. God does not take uh, pleasure in chastising his children. He, he has no pleasure in judging of the wicked. That's what the Bible says. He, does, he takes no pleasure in judging the wicked. If God takes no pleasure in judging the wicked, surely he takes no pleasure in chastising his children. Joseph had a love for God that governed his actions and gave him a healthy fear of God. A fear of doing something, not that he was worried that God was going to squish him like a bug, but that he would hurt God's heart. Don't raise your hand, but how many would not commit adultery on their spouse because, well, I don't want to get caught? And how many would be happy if that was your spouse's reason for not committing adultery? Not such a good reason. Why? Well, because I love my spouse and I wouldn't want to do anything to hurt my wife. Or you love your husband and you wouldn't want to do anything to hurt him. Because you know it would break their heart. That's the reason. Not, well, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to jeopardize my position. Think about David, or Joseph rather. 
You know, Joseph could have had a pity party for himself. He could have thought, well, God didn't keep me from being sold into slavery. God knew I was going to end up in Egypt. He didn't stop my brothers from selling me here. So why bother living for God in, in Egypt? By the way, why bother living for God in Egypt? I'll tell you why. Because I love God. Because God loves me. And I love him because he first loved me. He proved it when he sent his son for me. And I don't want to break God's heart. But he could have had a pity party and he could have said, you know what? I mean, adultery and fornication was part of the lifestyle of the Egyptians. When in Egypt, do like the Egyptians. God clearly put me here. Who cares? But Joseph said, no, I can't do that. I love God. Joseph could have got puffed up with pride. He could have thought, you know what? There's nobody greater in this house than I. The master of the house has put everything into my hand. And I have made him a, will, a wealthy man. The Bible says that because of God's blessings upon Joseph, that the, the wealth of Potiphar increased. His household goods increased. The fields increased. The, the cattle increased. Potiphar's making a ton of money off of Joseph being his slave. And Joseph is the head of the house, and he's in an exalted position. He could have just thought, you know what? I'm entitled to this. I've, got, I, I've done all this for you. But he said, I, I can't. I love God. Joseph could have reasoned from a point of fear. I, 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 better, I better listen to my master's wife because what if she makes up a... You think Joseph was so dumb that he didn't realize that the, that the wife could make up the lie that she did? That ha he had to have been able to reason that out. Do we not in our own lives, govern our actions sometimes because we realize somebody might say something that's not true and don't put ourselves in a situation because we say, you know what? They might be able to use that against me. And he could have acted from a point of fear. I don't want her to be my enemy. She can make my life miserable. What would be so terrible if I just do what she said. In fact, he could have even just kind of rationalized it out. Well, in my master's absence, she's the head of the house. I'm just doing what she told me to do. Joseph couldn't because he loved God. And that created a healthy fear of God in his life. He could have thought, well, there's little chance that we'll ever be found out. I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be, I guess. I'm doing my business. Clearly, there's nobody else around. It's clear that the temptress has made sure nobody else would be around. But none of these things moved him. I love Paul's statement in Acts chapter 20. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course and my ministry with joy 
And what was it? What was it when Paul said that? None of these things move me. They were tempting him. He was being tempted not to go to the place of God's calling in his life, not to go back to Jerusalem. But God had told him, you go ahead and go back to Jerusalem. It would have been a sin for Paul not to. And they're giving him all these reasons, rationalizing with him why he shouldn't go. And he said, no, none of these things move me. I think Joseph said, none of these things move me. Because he was repulsed by sin as a fruit of his love for God and his fear of disappointing him. And Joseph does not at all hesitate. He doesn't consider the proposition. In verse 9, he demonstrates his love for God and his fear for God and his repulsion to this. And he doesn't, there's like, there's no break in the action. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let's go through this quickly. Three things I want to see. From this phrase, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It'll help us the next time we're tempted. Number one, Joseph remembered who he was. He remembered who he was. How can I do this? If you, if you mark your Bible, I would encourage you to make that letter I, that first person personal pronoun stick out. How can I do this? Isn't it interesting that Joseph didn't look? Not, has Joseph sinned at this point? He has not sinned except for, if you take my theory and say he probably shouldn't be there, yet, you know, that's, that's not the point we want to argue this morning, okay? Has he really committed any gross sin? No, he hasn't. Has the temptress? Yes, because she has clearly said, look it, let's commit adultery. Let's commit fornication. How come Joseph doesn't look at her and go, how could you do that? What's wrong with you? Joseph doesn't take the route of the Pharisee and take time to lecture this woman on her woefully sinful actions. Though at this point it would seem that she's the one who's sinful. Could it be that Joseph was smote in his heart because he hadn't set up a safety net? Because he hadn't avoided this temptation? How can I do this? In the end, the Bible teaches us flee youthful lust. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. Abstain from the appearance of evil. Could it be that Joseph didn't point the finger at this woman and try to blame her for bringing temptation into his life because he recognized he hadn't done everything to avoid that temptation? The fact is, we, we don't know exactly what was going through Joseph's mind because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what was going through Joseph's mind. But in this incident, we certainly can see the truth of the matter. And Joseph was far more concerned about sin and the potential for sin in his own heart than he was for the sin in that woman's heart. And can I tell you something? And to get far more concerned about the sin in your own heart and the potential for sin in your own heart than in the, uh, the potential for sin or the sin in other people's heart, you're going to fall to temptation every time. He was repulsed by, by the very potential of this wickedness in his life that would break God's heart. Notice he, he, he doesn't ask, how can you do this great wickedness and sin against God? But not only that, he doesn't say this. How can we do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
there are so many who want to include somebody else in, in what's wrong with you? But Joseph says, this is about me. This is about my relationship with God. How can I do this? Joseph recognized something. Others may make light of sin. Others may entertain sin. Others may dabble in sin and see it as no great matter. But I can't do that. He remembered who he was. Who was he? Potiphar's slave? Yeah, but he was somebody greater than that. Who was he? The brother of some brothers that hated him so much they couldn't speak peaceably to him? Yeah, but he was somebody greater than that. He was a child of God, bought by the blood. And so he asked, how can I do this against God? How can I? How could I do this to the one who loves me so much? How could I do this and claim I love him? There are always going to be temptations to sin. One of the first questions you should ask yourself is this. How could I do that to God? How, how, how could I? These questions show that Joseph was genuinely repulsed by the wickedness of sin and the, and the fear of acting against God that he claimed he loved. Ultimately, he didn't ask, how can we do this great wickedness? Because not only had she committed the act in her heart and was thus condemned already, but he knew something about Potiphar's wife. She wasn't saved. She wasn't a child of God. So there was really no sense in asking her, how could you do this against God? Because she's ultimately not concerned. She's a child of disobedience, walking according to the course of this world, holding her conversation according to the prince of the power of the air, fulfilling the lust of her flesh and seeking to fulfill the desires of her flesh and of her mind. In other words, she's doing what lost people do. How could she sin against God? She didn't even know God in a personal way to know she was sinning against God. So he doesn't bother asking that question because it really wasn't a relevant question. For her, the fact of the matter is she's just doing what a natural, sinful heart does. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not a child of God, not saved. She has no sense of accountability to God. It's sad that, that many Christians will justify their sin by following the world. He could have entered into this and said, well, she tempted me. She is my boss. I had to do what she said. Colossians 3 and verse 5 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The word mortify in Colossians 3 and verse 5 is really a very interesting word. It speaks about premeditated murder. 
We call it murder in the first degree. Premeditated murder. What is Paul teaching us? You better get up every day and decide something. You better put your flesh to death every single day. You better die to self every single day. Because if you don't, when you're standing in Joseph's shoes, there's not such a good chance you're going to make the right decision. But if your flesh is already dead and you've already committed premeditated murder on fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, and idolatry, if that stuff's already dead, good chance you can make the right decision. Joseph, in this incident, is driven by a remembrance of who he was and to whom he belonged. What, know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, verse 17 says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What, know ye not that you're... Body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in the spirit, which are God's. You recognize that every time we sin, we drag God into it. You recognize that our life is not ours to choose to do sin and not do sin. Our command is premeditated murder. Kill that stuff in advance. And you do that by remembering who you are and to whom you belong. The world's always going to act sinful. It's what they do. It's what we did before we got saved. So, number one, I think you beat, you beat temptation by just remembering who you are and to whom you belong. Number two, I think you do what, what Joseph did and you regard sin for what it is. Notice in verse 9 again, uh, of Genesis, how then can we do this? That's not what he says. Why would you suggest such a thing? It's not what he says. How then can we do this great wickedness? You know, Joseph, in his life, it seems to me that he saw all sin as great wickedness. And our problem is that we categorize sins. That's a big sin, that's a little sin. Can I help you? That's a Catholic thing, that's not a Bible thing. There are no small or insignificant sins because there is no small and insignificant God to sin against. We have to look at all sin as great wickedness. Remember that Jesus paid for petty theft just like he paid for felony robbery. He paid the same exact price. He paid the same exact price for the little white lie that people are so fond of saying as he did for the great lie. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second, same price. Same amount of blood, same amount of agony on the cross, same amount of mocking. He pays the same price when we commit adultery in our heart or we carry out the physical act. 
He pays the same price for the small act of disobedience or so-called as for the great act of rebellion. He pays the same price for the atheist as he does for the Christian who is apathetic and indifferent. Cost him the same thing. There are no little sins. The songwriter wrote this, The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect holy one, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. But your perfect sacrifice, I've been, by your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend, pouring out your riches of your glorious grace. Your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, me now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. You know, the, the Christian life should be one great big thank you card to Jesus. But how do you say thank you while you're in the middle of mocking the price that he paid? By the way, study out Hebrews chapter 6 one time or sometime. Everybody thinks Hebrews 6 thinks that it says that we could lose our salvation. Doesn't. Doesn't at all. It says, how can you be renewed unto repentance? And if you study that, that passage very carefully, what you'll see is, how can you repent while you are actively carrying out sin? That's what Hebrews 6 is really teaching. Not that you can lose your salvation. How can you repent while you are actively carrying out sin? How can I say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me while I am actively carrying out sin? The problem is we don't, we don't see all sin as great wickedness. Romans 7 verse 13 says this, when was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it may appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Compare that with his testimony in Philippians. What does he say? He says, look, if anybody's got anything to boast of, I've got something to boast of. Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee, circumcised the seventh day of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? In the flesh, pretty good guy. As touching the law, righteous, he says. But when the sin or when the commandment came, sin was revived and sin became exceeding sinful. What was Paul's problem before he got saved? He didn't see himself as sinful. You know, what, you know what Potiphar's wife's problem was? She didn't see herself as sinful. You know what the world's problem is? They don't see themselves as sinful. You know what a lot of Christians' problem is? They don't see themselves as sinful. But Joseph said, no, this is a great wickedness. It's exceeding sinful. Matthew Henry said this. He said, when at any time we are tempted to sin, we must consider the great wickedness there is in it. Let sin appear sin, call it by its own name, and never go about to lessen it. Wow, that's good advice, huh? 
We lessen sin all the time with our Christian jargon. Heaven forbid that you hear of a pastor who has fallen into adultery, but what do we say? We don't say that. We want to protect everybody. We want to make it not sound so bad. Everybody knows what it means. Oh, he messed up. He's not in the ministry anymore. Why? He messed up. Everybody knows what that means. Maybe if we called it what it was, less guys would do it. Don't call it a little white lie. Don't call it a fib. Don't call it a misspoken word. Call it sin. Don't call it petty theft. Call it sin. Don't call it a moral failure. Call it adultery. Call it fornication. Call it lust. Call it sin. Don't call it busyness or or shyness that keeps me from telling other people about Jesus Christ. Call it indifference towards souls. Call it sin. It becomes a lot more ugly and a lot more uncomfortable when we call it by its name, don't we? Doesn't it? It's not as easy to carry out. Don't call it a lack of self-esteem that causes you to always be drawing attention to yourself. Call it self-centeredness. Call it sin. Don't, don't, don't call it a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. I love that proverb. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep that keeps you glued to a lazy boy and never involved in the work of God. Call it slothfulness. Call it being a sluggard. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways. Isn't it amazing that God thinks so little of sluggards that he says you can learn from an ant? (laughs) Don't call it relaying a prayer request and concern for somebody else when it's truly gossip. Don't call it a concern for the direction of the church and its leadership when you criticize and critique every decision that is made. Call it backbiting. I got a one-year-old grandson. Guess what? He's a little sinner. I don't know what possessed my daughter to send out a, a little video of him the other day pitching a fit in his high chair. All the excuses on the text started pouring in. He's teething. He's this. No, he's a sinner. He's a wicked little sinner. He takes after his grandmother. (laughs) But they named him Tony. When we use Bible words, it becomes a lot more uncomfortable. This is why, even in a gospel presentation, I don't speak of somebody going to hell. What, what weight does the word hell have in any of our vocabularies any longer? Nothing. By the way, you do recognize that ultimate judgment is not hell. It is a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a lot more uncomfortable than hell. Use Bible words. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit of God chose the words he chose. We, we believe that. We believe, we're the ones who believe the Bible is inspired word for word. Use the words God gave us. Use it in all your context. And all of people say, do you believe in eternal security? I know I'm getting a little off track here. Do you believe in eternal security? I believe in eternal salvation. I believe in eternal redemption. I believe in eternal life. So I guess I do believe in eternal security, but I'll use Bible words. 
makes it a harder for somebody to fight against me when I say, well, if I don't have eternal life, if I have eternal life, how could I not have eternal security? Use Bible words. What God calls great wickedness, call it great wickedness. Call it an abomination. Call it filthy rags. Call it exceeding sinful. The love of God will never lead to the belittling of sin and will never, ever allow us to cover or excuse for it. Purity of heart leads to purity of life. And until you and I, like Joseph, can call sin for what it is, great wickedness, we're always going to dabble in it. Notice a third thing. Three ways I see that Joseph overcame this, this temptation in his life. And the third one is simply this. He remembered who he was. He regarded sin for what it is. He recognized against whom he would sin. He recognized against whom he would sin. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let those words against God kind of rattle around in your ears and settle on your heart. Against God. Because ultimately, this is what all sin is. It's against God. And I think sometimes we aren't so concerned with sin because we don't recognize it as being against God. Let me give you an example. Joseph could have looked at this and thought, well, this is against man. What do I care if I sin against Potiphar? He's holding me hostage. (laughs) Yeah, I know I got a kind of a cushy job for a slave, but I'm still a slave. I don't know about you. I don't care how cushy the job is. I don't want to be a slave. So if this was just against Potiphar, it had been easy to rationalize and justify. If this had just been a code of ethics, well, the code of ethics in Israel is you don't do this, but the code of ethics in Egypt is this is perfectly fine and acceptable. If it had been against this woman, or against himself, against his own body, against his own soul, he might easily have yielded to the temptation. But he didn't. Why? He recognized something greater was going on here. If I do this, I do this against God. Matthew Henry said again, Gracious souls look upon this as the worst thing in sin, that it is against God, against his nature, against his dominion, against his love and his design. Those that love God do for this reason hate sin. Someone else said, We we never see sin aright until we see it against God. All sin is against God in this sense, that it is his law that is broken, his authority that is despised, his government that is set at naught. Pharaoh and Balaam, Saul and Judas, each said, I have sinned. They left off against God. It's not enough to just say, I have sinned. I, I, 
you know, to be in the boat with Judas isn't such a great thing. With Pharaoh, Balaam, or Saul, the returning prodigal said this, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Joseph asked, how can I do this? Great wickedness and sin against God. You ever been so upset with somebody, so frustrated with somebody, you thought, hmm, I'll get back at them. And you go out of your way from a bitter spirit to get back at somebody. That's against God. That's not against that person. Teenagers persist in rebellion because they think they're hurting their parents. Now they're sinning against God. Employers, employees pay lip service to their, to their employer because they think, yeah, they don't really treat me right anyways. No, that's a sin against God. Oh, we continue to cling to a root of bitterness and hold a grudge against somebody and we think, I'll make them pay. Hey, can I tell you something? Bitterness is like letting somebody live rent-free in your head forever. Because <laughs> let me tell you something. The person you're bitter about and the sin they've committed against you, they've forgotten and moved on. There was a comedian who said, and I'm going to have to paraphrase him, I think it was Buddy Hackett. He said, I, I'm never bitter against anybody because he said, by the, while I'm being bitter, they're off dancing in the streets. <laughs> yeah, you might hurt somebody with your sin. You might cause your spouse pain, a teenager cause their parents pain. You might get back at your employer. But ultimately, remember this. You have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. Never erase from your mind and your heart that all sin is primarily an attack against Jesus Christ who died for us. Our hatred of sin, our repulsion from wickedness will always be in direct proportion for our love for God and our fear of God. Let me say that again. Our hatred of sin and our repulsion from wickedness will always be in direct proportion to our love for God and our fear of God. Always. The more we dabble in sin and tolerate wickedness, the clearer it becomes that we have no love for God and we don't even think he's worthy of our love. I don't know about you, but I have to wake up in the morning and I have to say to God, God, today, I'm gonna need you to help me to see sin the way you see it. And I'm gonna need you to help me to, to look at sin as you look at it because I, I, I don't want to do something to break your heart, but I'm sinful, desperately wicked. And I'm going to have to have you remind me. Because I'm yours, you bought me. And I sure don't want to disappoint you. So how did, how did Joseph win victory over this sin? Well, he remembered who he was. He regarded sin for what it was. And he recognized sin against whom he would sin. And I think until we get to a place where we do that in our lives consistently, we're going to find ourselves failing at temptation. You can have victory over temptation. Joseph is proof. 
1 Corinthians says God hath made a way for us to escape. There is victory over temptation. But you've got to prepare for it. So today, in Sunday school, if you haven't already, I'm going to ask you to carry out premeditated murder. Don't kill the preacher, okay? But on purpose, every morning, decide, God, with your help, I'm going to kill the sin in my heart. Because I, I, don't, I don't want to be involved in that great wickedness. There is no little sin. Our Father, we, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and the, the privilege to meet together this morning. Bless, uh, bless as we go our separate ways from this class, but also the, the service to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got about 10 minutes before service or 11, according to that clock.